You know how it is. When you're hungry, your stomach makes noises. Well, when I get hungry, my stomach does. There's a lot of things you can hear that you don't want to hear if you're meandering through Jurassic Park or Jurassic World. But the one thing you really, really don't want to hear And this episode needs a theme, so... And now that you've plugged your headphones back in, or put your headphones back into your ear after having them blasted out by Rexy there, let's get on with what I wanted to get on with today. And just so, and a lot of people, although after listening to several episodes I've gone through now, you might know, and just so people who, people who don't know, that was Rexy, a T-Rex in the beginning there, followed by a velociraptor, raptor calls. Now, as you've heard me say several times, the raptors that you saw in Jurassic Park were not actual velociraptors. They were, they were actually based on the, on the Deinonychus, which I believe means terrible claw. But there's a lot of stories behind that, and I'll read on a previous episode or listen to a previous episode where I get into it a lot more than I have. But what I wanted to get into now, what I thought was really cool, is something that I touched on before, but something that I wanted to touch on again, to delve into a little bit more. And there's a lot of histories, histories. There's a lot of histories. Yeah, I'm just like, you know, I go through podcast episodes and I just make up random words. There's a lot of histories and legends about this area. And it's near Apache Junction in Arizona. It's the Lost Dutchman Mine in the Superstition Mountains. There's a lot of interesting stories about it. A lot of really, really cool legends. Just the legends of it is really, really interesting. And a lot of this research, like I said, has come from Wikipedia and the Arizona State documents and and legend Arizona State historical documents and stuff like that. I've done a lot of digging, a lot more digging than I had done on previous episodes. And it's actually it's interesting because it's kind of like I said before, it's going through time. One of the best treasure tales and, and Wikipedia as well. One of the best treasure tales in the history of the American West is a lost Dutchman mine. Shrouded in mystery, the mine is not only allegedly rich in gold, but it's also said to have a curse, which led, led to a number of strange death, deaths, as well as people who mysteriously go missing when they attempt to locate the mine. A lot of what, you're hear, what you'll hear throughout this and what you hear when you're reading, reading stories and seeing documentaries is something called Weaver's Needle. And hopefully we'll get into that a little bit more and I'll, I'll try to explain it if we don't. 
For more than 120 years, the legend of the Lost Dutchman Mine has been told over and over, growing in proportions to such extent that some claim the entire legend is nothing but a myth. But for thousands of others, the mine and its legends are extremely real, hidden in the forbidding peaks within the Superstition Mountains of Arizona. Real or not, the haunting tales endure, continuing to draw prospectors to the superstitions and making the story one of the most famous lost treasure tales of all time. East of Phoenix is the superstitions, more commonly referred to by locals as the superstitions. Standing majestically at the forefront of this rough terrain is Superstition Mountain, a 3,000-foot-high monolith which, which seemingly stands guard over the rest of the territory. Long before gold was found in these rugged cliffs and mesas, the area has been cloaked in mystery. When the Spanish arrived in 1540, the region was inhabited by the Apache Indians, or the Apache Native Americans, who considered Superstition Mountain to be sacred, as it was home to their thunder god. Led by Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, the conquistadors cared little about the Apache customs and beliefs, wanting only to find the legendary seven gold cities of Cibola. Learning from the Apache that the range did, in fact, hide gold, the Spaniards were intent upon exploring the area. The Apache, however, refused to help them, telling them that if they dared to trespass on sacred ground, their thunder god would take revenge, causing tremendous suffering and horrible deaths. The Indians called the Superstition Mountains the Devil's Playground. But the Spaniards were determined to begin to begin to explore, and they did. Almost immediately, men began to mysteriously vanish, to the point that warnings were given to never stray more than a few feet away from the rest of the group. Still more men disappeared only to be found dead later, their bodies mutilated and their heads cut off. In fear, the conquistadors fled, refusing to return to the mountains, which they later dubbed Monte Superstition. The legends began. A century and a half later, having heard of the rich gold to be found in the superstitions, Jesuit priest Eusebio Francisco Kino, whose objectives was to establish missions and Christianize the Indians, was lured by the tales. In the first decade of the 1700s, he began to explore the region, finding several sources of gold, though it is not known if he found the fabled Dutchman's mine. His forays did produce the coveted shining metal adding more fuel to the legend of gold in the superstitions. However, these expeditions further enraged the Apache, 
who then began to prey on all trespassers. In 1748, the superstitions, as well as some 3,750 square miles of what is now Arizona, were given to Mexican to the to Mexican cattle baron Don Miguel Peralta of Sonora in a land grant. The land not only contained contained a rich gold mine, but also several silver mines. This was the first official recording of the mine's existence. For the next century, the Peralta family and their laborers would make frequent in would make infrequent forays into Arizona, bringing out loads of ore. Aware of the Apache displeasure, they kept these mining trips to a minimum, not wanting to risk the ferocious Apache's ire. However, in 1846, four descendants of the original Grant, Enrico, Pedro, Ramon, and Manuel Peralta, decided to make another foray into Arizona, risking not only the curse, but also the wrath of the Apache. They soon returned to Sonora, laden with gold, and planning another trip. The next year, with the Mexican-American War in full swing, Pedro was the only one willing to return to Arizona. Determined to extract as much gold as possible before their holdings became part of the United States, in the meantime, the Apache were angry at the intrusion upon their sacred grounds. When the Peralta miners heard that the Apache might attack, they packed up. They concealed the entrance to the mine, and with burros and wagons laden with gold, began to make their way to Mexico in the winter of 1847 to 1848. But they wouldn't make it. They were attacked by the Apache. The pack mules scattered in all directions, spilling the gold everywhere. For years afterwards, prospectors flocked to the area, not only in search of the mine, but also in search of the scattered Mexican gold spilled throughout, throughout the mountains during the massacre. In the 1850s, two, pros two prospectors are said to have come upon three dead burrows with intact pack saddles that contained some $37,000 worth of gold. The Peralta family refrained even more from working the mines for the next 16 years. However, in 1864, Enrico Peralta, leading some 400 men, ventured back into the range. It would be his last. On the northwest slopes of the mountain, in an area now referred to as Massacre Ground, all but one of the miners were ambushed and killed by the Apache. Never again did the Peralta family venture back to the mine, and all maps and knowledge of its location were lost to history and throughout the years. The next person to come across the mine was a man named Dr. Abraham Thorne, 
1865, Thorne was working as an army doctor at Fort McDowell, Arizona. During his time, the Apache had turned the wrath against the Arizona settlers and the U.S. Army. As the Indians were subdued by the soldiers, a reservation was established near Fort McDowell, where Thorne began to provide his services. Thorne earned the respect of tribal leaders as he cared for the sick and injured, and after curing several Apache of an eye disease, he was offered an opportunity to be led to the gold in the superstitions in roughly 1870. However, Thorne had agreed to be blindfolded for the 20-mile trip so as not to see the path or where he was going. When the doctor agreed, he was taken to a place that was allegedly near the mine, where a pile of gold ore had been stacked near the base of the canyon wall. Allowed to remove the blindfold, Thorne found himself in a canyon where a large, unusual rock pinnacle loomed to the south. The Apache let him pick up as much as he could before the doctor was again blindfolded for a return trip. Thorne then sold the ore for some $6,000, making him a very wealthy man. However, sometime later, legend tells us that Dr. Thorne determined that he would try to find the place once more. Gathering up a few of his friends, the group amazingly stumbled into the into the mine's location. Onto the mine's location, after filling their saddlebags with as much gold as they could carry, they started to they, they started to Phoenix, but never lived to enjoy the wealth. They were discovered by the Apache, who immediately ambushed them, killing them before they could escape with the gold. In the 1870s, one of the most famous men of the mountains, Jacob Waltz, or W-A-L-Z, Jacob Waltz, what's, he's commonly referred to as Jacob Waltz, who had befriended one of the Peralta heirs, was allegedly told the location of the mine. Waltz, a German immigrant who had relocated to Arizona some years previous, worked as a prospector and owned a homestead on the northern side of Superstition Mountain. However, before relocating to what is now Penal County, Arizona, Waltz worked at the Henry, Wick worked at the Henry Wickensburg's Vulture Gold Mine near Wickenburg, Arizona. While there, he met an Apache girl named Kenty, who, despite the fact that Waltz was Despite the fact that Waltz was almost 60 years old at the time, became his mistress. Later, Waltz was suspected was suspected of high-grading high ore from the vulture mine and was immediately dismissed. It was then that the pair moved near the Superstition Mountain Range. Another version of the tale states that Waltz actually learned of the mine's location from Kenty. In retaliation, the Apache, who were convinced that Kenty had betrayed the site of their sacred shrine, they attacked Waltz and his Indian mistress, 
seizing Kenty and cutting out her tongue. Waltz, however, was able to escape, and before long was running a saloon in Tortilla Flats. But, by 1877 it is said, he and another man by the name of Jacob Weiser returned to the superstitions. Not long after, the miners began to pay for supplies in nearby Phoenix with high-grade gold ore, but they never stated where it was coming from, nor did they even file a claim. A few years later, Weiser disappeared without a trace. Speculation was rampant, with some saying he was killed by Apache and others alleging he was killed by Waltz. For the next 10 years, Waltz would often appear in Phoenix with saddlebags filled with some of the richest gold ore many had ever seen, before disappearing once again into the Superstition Mountains. People often asked him the obvious questions. Where was the gold from? Where was the mine? To these, Waltz would give contra contradictory statements and confusing directions. When people tried to follow him out of town, he would lose them in the many clefts and canyons towards the peak. In the spring of 1891, Walt's homestead was caught in a flood and he was saved from certain death by two brothers named Hermann and Reinhardt Petras. Having taken, having, having taken on a terrible chill, he was attended to by a woman named Julia Thomas, who tried to nurse him back to health. But Jacob had contracted pneumonia. He sent, he sent friends back to his home to see if they could find the gold that he had kept there. Though the house was gone, searchers were later, were later able to locate five stacks of gold worth about $15,000. Delivering it to Jacob, it was placed under his sick bed. Throughout the summer, he lingered in a, in a wasted condition, giving clues to his caretaker, Julia and to his rescuers, Hermann and Reinhardt. But his condition was worsening as he suffered a stroke and was paralyzed to the point that he could barely speak. Undaunted, however, Julia and Hermann and, and Reinhardt made an expedition into the superstitions that summer trying to find the mine. But after five weeks, the three returned with nothing. Jacob finally died on October 25th, 1891. The legend continued to grow, and soon the lost mine was referred to as the Lost Dutchman. As many uh, as many at the time confused, had confused Germans with the Dutch. Julia Thomas, having invested everything she owned into the venture to find the mine, never attempted to find it again. And I lost my place as I tend to as I tend to do. Uh, uh, I I.
I completely lost my place in my notes and the article that I'm referring to and reading from. Herman accused his brother Reinhardt of not paying attention to Jacob's bedside clues and the disagreement led to their never speaking again. Separately, however, they both spent much of the rest of their lives looking for the mine. The legend of the mine, as well as tales of its curse, continued to grow over the years. As more and more stories were told relating to mysterious deaths, disappearances, and small gold fields. In the summer of 1880, two recently discharged soldiers from Fort McDowell showed up in Pinal, Arizona, looking for work at the Silver King mine. When they showed up, when they showed a bag of gold ore to the Silver King manager, Aaron Mason, the manager was was stunned to see how rich the ore was and immediately began to ask where they had found it. The soldiers replied that the ore had been picked up while crossing the Superstition Mountain, while crossing Superstition Mountain, where they had also spied an old mine. Mason brought the ore from, from them, bought the ore from the men, outfitted them and entered a partnership with the pair to share the to share the profits. The two sure that they could find the find the place then headed towards weaver's there it is see i said see i said it would come up the two sure that they could find the place then headed towards weaver's needle but after two weeks had not returned mason sent out a search party who found the nude bodies of both men shot through the head the next pro- the next year a prospector by the name of joe deering who was working as a part-time bartender in Pinal, heard the stories of the two dead soldiers and began to look for the lost mine. He soon returned to Pinal, saying that he had found an old mine, describing it as the most god-awful rough place you can imagine, a ghostly place. Deering, however, continued to work as a bartender until he could save enough money for the excavation. To make even more money, he then went back then went to work at the silver mine the silver king mine just a week later he was killed in a cave-in without ever disclosing the location another tale describes an eccentric prospector named alicia marcus Rivas, who was better known in the area as the madman of the superstitions or the old hermit one of Arizona's most interesting characters. Rivas was actually college educated and taught school before he began to prospect. Not having much luck in California, which is where he started during the California Gold Rush, he made his way to Arizona in the 1860s. By 1872, Rivas was living in a high mountain valley near Pinal, where he thought where he farmed vegetables and hunted hunted in his isolated mountain retreat. Though he preferred his own company and his large library of books to being with others, he never turned away a visitor to his retreat and often traveled to the area mining camps to sell his vegetables. It was not his manner that, that earned him his eccentric, eccentric reputation. Rather, it was his appearance. 
his, highly in, his high intelligence and the isolated way he lived. Never shaving or cutting his hair. He, he seldom bathed, and rumors said he was prone to running naked through the canyons, firing a pistol into the sky. Sure, sure that he was not mad, even the Apache left him alone. In the spring of 1896, when Rivas hadn't been seen for some time, one of his few friends went to check on him. The nearly 70-year-old man was found dead about four miles south of his home on a trail near Rogers Canyon. His head had been severed from his body and was lying several feet away. Later that year, two Easterners went looking for the lost mine and were never seen again. Around the turn of the century, two, sp two prospectors who went by the name of Silverlock and Malm began to work on the northern edge of Superstition Mountain, seeking dozens of shafts into the mountainside. They found little gold other than some scarce remains from the Peralta Massacre. In 1910, Malm appeared in Mesa, Arizona, telling everyone that Silverlock had tried to kill him. Silverlock was picked up by a lawman, judged insane, and sent to an asylum. Malm was later sent to the port to the county poor farm, not doing much for much better himself. Both died within two years. Also in 1910, the skeleton of a woman was found in a cave high up on Superstition Mountain. With the body were several gold nuggets. The coroner could tell that the woman's death was recent, but the gold was never explained. More than 20 years later, in 1927, a New Jersey man and his sons were hiking in the mountain when the rocks began to roll down, roll down on them from the cliffs above, as if someone had pushed the boulders. One of the boy's legs were, was crushed. Just a year later, two deer hunters were driven off the mountain when again, rolling boulders appeared to have been pushed by someone or something down the mountain towards them. In June 1931, yet another event added to the legends of the Superstition Mountain when Adolf, when Adolf Ruth, a West D Washington DC veterinarian and avid treasure hunting lobbyist went missing in a wilderness area of the peak. In his search, Ruth utilized a map that his son had, ab had obtained in Mexico several years earlier, which dated back to the period of the Mexican Revolution, and was later referred to as the Ruth Peralta map. Ruth was searching for, for, lost per for the lost Peralta mines. <coughs> the blasted allergy cough again especially that mine of the lost dutchman arriving in the areas arriving in the area in may ruth convinced two local cowboys to pack him into the, to pack him into the mountains where they left him to his exploring at a place called willow springs in west boulder canyon around june 14 1931 when nothing had been heard of ruth for 6 days the cowboy's boss, 
a man named Tex Barkley went looking for the treasure hunter. Upon arriving at Ruth's camp, the, ra the rancher could tell that no one had been there for at least a day and reported Ruth missing. A reward was immediately offered by the family and searchers combed the mountain. For the next 45 days, Ruth was not found or heard from. Some months later, in December, a skull with two holes in it was discovered near, near the Three Red Hills by an archaeological expedition. It turned out to be that of Adolf Ruth. The rest of the treasure hunter's body would not be found until the next month in a small tributary on the east slope of Blacktop Mesa. Ruth's treasure map was found at his original campsite. The headlines were sensational, alleging that Ruth had been murdered for his map. However, the original coroner said that he could not be positive the skull had had, had, had bullet holes in it, but Adolf's son, Irwin, was convinced his father had been killed. Though the coroner acceded that foul play might have been involved, the original statement was never changed. Most believed that Ruth died, probably from the extreme desert heat, but his body was carried away in parts by wild animals. To this day, his death remains a mystery. However, it is but one more life claimed by the mountains, and perhaps their curse. In 1934, the superstition claimed the life of Adam Stewart, the cause of death unknown. Two years later, in December of 1936, another life was claimed when hobbyist Roman Ohal, a broker from New York, died from a fall when he was searching for the lost Dutchman. There are countless legends and countless stories of what happened, or what could have what could what could have happened in the mountains what what the superstitions are are they a place some sort of vortex cursed by the apache and they're warning for people to stay out is there some sort of a of, of a curse placed upon them either by some other being some other thing that that, that we don't know or we can't comprehend or by the Apaches and their warnings and their their hatred and their attacks could we don't know this and the Apache aren't to blame and a lot of people are, we don't know so we can't assume blame on anyone but this is just extremely extremely entertaining extremely extremely interesting if you look in the podcast the Facebook community I'm gonna post some pictures of all my research and stories that were stories that were told and done about the superstitions and the lost Dutchman. It's extremely interesting and it's really, really cool. So thank you all so much for listening. Stick around for a little bit more in the end here. Wanna check out the best travel vlogger and videos anywhere? Go to Atlantic City Disney, Six Flags, all along the Atlantic City boardwalk, and 
go to Vegas, check out the New York channel, N-U-Y-A-W-K on YouTube. You will be thoroughly impressed and thoroughly entertained. You will love every second of what you're seeing. Go to YouTube and check out N-U-Y-A-W-K. You'll love what you're seeing. You'll enjoy every second of it. Want to check out the best podcast and best YouTube channel out there? True, true friends of this podcast? Check out Fantastic Cruising over on Apple Podcasts and all your favorite podcasting devices and services. Give them a five-star review. Head on over to YouTube. Look up Fantastic Studios. Give them a five-star review and give them comments. They'll love that to death. They are the greatest podcast out there. Give them a shout-out. Want to check out the environment, the climate, the planet, and everything we can do to have an impact on it? Check out City Climate Corner on all the podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, on everything. You won't be disappointed. You'll enjoy and love what you're listening to.